Attention architects and creative minds, get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul, uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. Entree Architect community, welcome to the backstage area of Context and Clarity. Every Thursday afternoon on Context and Clarity Live, Catherine McPhail and I and our live audiences that are joining us from all across the internet, we get to talk to a special guest to search for clarity around the things that matter most to you, the architect, no matter what your context is. You may be the employee of a firm that's dreaming of doing your own thing. Or you may have had your own firm for a year or 10 years or 20 years, and you're starting to rethink or reimagine what that firm could or maybe even should be. Every week, we cover topics that fall under the broad umbrella of the business of architecture. And they're all the need-to-know topics for the success of entrepreneur architects just like you. If we've never met before, my name is Jeff Eccles, and what you're about to listen to is the audio recording of a conversation that my co-host Catherine McPhail and I had to break down this week's Context and Clarity live conversation. So thanks for joining us as we share our biggest takeaways and look for ways to apply what we heard in the Context and Clarity live conversation to our own businesses. In this episode of Context and Clarity, we're trying something different. Last year, one of my graduate students told me that they really liked podcasts where there was someone to, quote, tell them what it all means. In other words, it's great that you're interviewing all of these great guests, but what am I supposed to take away from the conversation? And how can I apply that to what I'm doing? Those comments really opened my eyes, and we evolved the podcast to include parts of our conversation with our Context and Clarity live guests, and also my thoughts, sometimes the thoughts of different architects in the Entree Architect community, and certainly my co-host Catherine McPhail's thoughts. Last week, we were reminded 
And I know many times I take this for granted, but we were reminded that there's so much going on with context and clarity and in the Entree Architect community that we never even touch on. So it's time to change again. We're going to give you a broader view of what's going on in the Entree Architect community and in all the different versions of context and clarity. Remember those Did You Know segments on the news? Remember the news? Did you know that every weekday morning, we kick context and clarity off with what we call our coffee talk at 9 a.m. Eastern on the Clubhouse app? It's an hour where you can speak. Clubhouse is a voice-only social app where we can hear your voice, but we don't see you. There's no posting of anything. It's just conversations. It's a really cool way to connect. We have the Context and Clarity Club there inside of Clubhouse. So all of that happens. All of those conversations happen at 9 a.m. Eastern before we ever get to our daily Context and Clarity conversations at 4 p.m. Eastern every weekday in the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. Those are the two places where every day architects like you gather to dig into the topic of the day. You can ask questions, you can answer questions, you can share experiences, you can really bring your own experience and your own curiosity to the conversations that we have about the business of architecture. Again, both on Clubhouse in the morning at 9 a.m. Eastern and inside the Entree Architect Community Facebook group at 4 p.m. Eastern. That, of course, brings us back to here. We've been recapping Context and Clarity Live for over a year. That's the live stream interview show that goes out to Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Twitch, and YouTube every Thursday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern. We'll continue to give you our hot takes on those interviews. In this episode, in fact, Catherine and I will share our takeaways from our Context and Clarity Live interview with Melissa Wackerly, a resiliency and sustainability strategist at the American Institute of Architects. But we're also going to talk about current events and topics that have come up in the dozens of posts per week in the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. That's where almost 8,000 architects from around the world all come to hang out. And again, ask questions, answer questions, share experience, encourage each other, rely on each other, and really build a community where we can help each other make our businesses better. And what we're also going to do is we're going to tell you what's been going on in our context and clarity conversations every day. That's a lot. That's a lot to pack into an episode because there's a lot going on. It may take us a little while to get this dialed in just right. I get that. But I hope that we'll get to the point where we're creating an immersive entree architect experience. So in an attempt to not waste too much more time in this introduction, let me sum this episode up with a few bullet points. Catherine and I talk about the controversial article in the Times titled, Damn All Architects, The Rich Man's Folly. Did you see it? It blew up all over social media. So my guess is you may have at least heard about it. And you may be able to guess what our reaction to that article is. We're also going to talk about a week of conversations on context and clarity about sustainability. Believe it or not, after nearly 650 context and clarity conversations, this is actually the first 
time that we've spent an entire week focused just on sustainability. We're also going to talk about our Context and Clarity book club discussion. I forgot to mention that. We select one book to read every month. And then on the last Friday of the month, we discuss it. It's pretty standard book club fare. In November, we read The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. If you have not read this book yet, you need to read it. That's all I'm going to say about it now. You can listen on in the episode. You can hear what Catherine and I have to say about it, but you need to read the book. And finally, Catherine and I talk about our conversation with Melissa Wackerly, a resiliency and sustainability strategist at the American Institute of Architects. Melissa had shared some great resources, some that many of us didn't even know existed. And I think she also had some great takes on what we need to do, not only at the level of the profession, but also our responsibility at the practice or the individual level. And spoiler alert, she also provided a great segue to our conversation about the color of law. You're going to have to keep listening in if you want to figure out where that connection in, but it's a very, very good, very solid connection between resiliency, sustainability, and everything that Richard Rothstein writes about in The Color of Law. So check that out. As I said, Catherine McPhail joined me for both the Context and Clarity Live conversation with Melissa Wackerly and also for this episode and our new format here. Catherine is an architect and a podcaster in Fairhaven, Massachusetts. In addition to Context and Clarity, Catherine hosts Talking Home Renovations with the House Maven, and she's the CEO of Demios Architects. Okay, I'm looking forward to giving you a bigger view of what's going on in the world of Entree Architect. So let's go backstage and listen in as Catherine and I talk about a week of Context and Clarity and our conversation with Melissa Wackerly. Resiliency and Sustainability Strategist at the American Institute of Architects. All right, welcome back to a new version of the Context and Clarity podcast. We're trying a different format, and I'm pretty excited about it. We're looking at context and clarity, not just as, or not only as basically a response to our context and clarity live, but bringing more of the context and clarity community and the small firm community into the conversation. So this is it's our first attempt at it. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, we'll figure it out as we go. And as usual, Catherine McPhail is here to help me figure things out. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Jeff. I'll see what I can do. Well, there's a lot to say about the context and clarity week. I mean, we do a lot of different things during the week. There is. There's a lot going on. And we were we had a team meeting, uh, what, a week ago, I suppose. And uh, we were reminded, hey, we don't talk about everything that goes on inside the community and, and everything that goes on with context and clarity enough. So uh, this part of of this um, this format change is to, is to change that, is to uh, let you know more about what goes on. So maybe maybe the place to start is where does context and clarity happen? This morning, 9 a.m. Eastern on Clubhouse, uh, as it does every weekday morning, the context and clarity discussion started in the in the live audio format of of uh, Clubhouse. And uh, if you've never if you have not tried that before, it's a very it's a very different social media app. It's a place where you can't see anybody, but you can 
you can talk. We hear your voice. We don't see you. We see your avatar, but we we hear your voice. And so you can actually carry on a conversation like a uh, like a party line on a telephone. Remember those? I do. I know that brings me a lot of anxiety, though. Because I used to get in a lot of trouble for talking on the party lines. Mm. Well, I mean, the good news is you won't get in trouble now for talking no. about the clubhouse. No, but there's still a residue of that anxiety. And I wonder, what is that? Oh, yeah, that must be the party line. As you're listening to this, of course, this will be in, this well, this discussion, this part of the discussion will be in past tense. But this morning we kicked off a week of talking about uh, maybe the evolution of, of firm ownership and mergers and acquisitions. Uh, topics like that, because we're going to talk with Jamie Claire Kaiser later this week. Jamie's from the uh, Zweig Group, and she heads up mergers and acquisitions over there. But this morning on uh, Clubhouse, that's where I guess the the conversation officially kicked off. Uh, the question was, what would it take for you to partner with someone? And I suspect that was a lively conversation. How did it go? Well, I think a lot of us don't work for anybody because we don't really want to work for anybody. Right. So then then we were talking about what what does that mean to have this other partnership? And a lot of us are also married. So we feel like maybe that's enough of a partnership to have Mm. to manage. And then it seemed like people were more open on individual project collaborations and partnering on a smaller scale, not having a full a a full partner. I'm I'm interested in getting into that conversation later today, because I think one thing we try to do or I try to do, I guess, when I make up these topics for context and clarity is leave the door wide open for it to go anywhere, right? For the conversations to go all over the place. So I think partners as spouses, significant others on a project by project basis um, and or partner as in business partner. I think, you know, I think any, any of those places are, are, are good places to take the conversation. So I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, I, I, you know, what would it take for you to partner with someone? Well, that's going to mean a lot of different things. Yeah, I think we meant in the in the work we took it as meaning the work sense, not but that that we were just saying that a lot of us already have a marriage which is a partnership that requires a lot of compromise and all that and so maybe in your own business then it's nice not to have to maybe that's just me. On probably on every level, I guess now that I think about it, the same things that are necessary to have a good marriage or or um any other type of partnership probably span span the different contexts i've been a part of a couple of con or a couple of partnerships and um, one ended very very poorly i've called it a bad business divorce a lot because it was all of the the trust and the all of the things that are necessary you know i would say erode eroded but you know collapsed exploded whatever everything went up in a in a blaze of not so glorious completion so i i think that you know whether it is a marriage or a business partnership or one just for this project that you're you're getting ready to start i think there are some pretty fundamental things that are necessary um to make those partnerships happen and i can i can see why people may not be so enthusiastic about committing to a partnership. It means a lot and it takes a lot. And maybe we already have something else we're working on. So, but we we did talk about one time James had gotten in touch with me. James Polk had gotten in touch with me and said, hey, because uh, he's an expert on or he loves um, Frank Lloyd Wright, right? So he said, if you ever get a project where the person wants to do a house that is like Frank Lloyd Wright, let's, let's collaborate on it and I can help you with that and you can do all the other stuff. So- I mean, nobody has come along who's who has wanted me to do that in the meantime. But yeah, it's like I would I would do that with you, James. 
So we we start out Clubhouse weekday mornings, 9 a.m. Eastern, or we start out Context and Clarity, I should say, uh, on Clubhouse at 9 a.m. Eastern every morning. And again, that's just, that's an app. It's an audio only social media app. So go to the app store or wherever you get apps and you can find that, find Clubhouse and you can join us in the Context and Clarity Club. Later in the afternoon, of course, we have um, what we call our Context and Clarity Conversations. We have called it that now for 650 conversations. We do it every weekday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern, four days a week inside the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. And so looking forward this week, as I said, we're talking about mergers and acquisitions and future firm ownership, et cetera. Looking backwards at last week, which we'll talk more about later, we talked about resiliency and sustainability. So the idea uh, in these context and clarity conversations is to dig into one topic every day with the community and um, just just try to find the things that matter most to the success of entrepreneur architects. That's part of the part of the opening there. Um, so we we have those those conversations, and the majority of those take place inside the Entree Architect Community Facebook group, which is a closed group just for architects. About uh, seventy eight hundred. It's trying to or right now Facebook says seven point eight thousand, so seventy eight hundred or so members from around the world in that Facebook group right now. Right. And if you're an architect, you, the listener, if you're an architect, you can join that group as well. As I scroll through the group there, you know, just for a taste of what's going on here, here's a question from uh, Melissa. Anyone have a good resource for residential or residential panic or safe rooms? Oh, I mean, we could all use one of those. Yeah. I mean, I, I imagine that that's become more and more popular uh, over the years, maybe this falls under the uh, the topic of current events. It's what is the, it's an article in the Times, and the title of the article this uh, this might uh, get, grab your interest. Damn all architects, the rich man's folly. And then there's yeah, there's a like a sub a subheading here that says your project's four months late and seventy five grand over budget. But what did you expect when you hired a specky design wonk? I really tried to fully understand his point of view in this this article. It's I don't even know what to say about I, I don't even know what to say about it, honestly. I mean, it ends with to just by a single word, the celebrated rebel rallying cry from Shakespeare's Henry the Sixth. The first thing we do, let's kill all the architects. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, that guy's not anybody's ideal client, I guess. That's all I'm gonna say about that. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking he's probably not. You know, I I think on some level this is it's very clickbaity. I don't know that that's a word or a, a, a phrase, but um, you know, there are as you look at the look at the article, you know, on the page, there's a a headline that says they're like backstreet abortionists and illegal plastic surgeons. They're like, how on earth are we like backstreet abort? Yeah, the whole article is he's saying there's no point in hiring an architect. Basically, that we don't do anything, which is kind of interesting because if it ties into our conversation last week um, with Melissa about how architects can help lead the sustainability of the, you know, the built environment and how important it is for people to understand what an impact that's making. And then he's basically saying in this article, like, we have no, we just don't have any, um, 
relevance in anything. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, that's basically his, his point of view. That's what this whole article is. Yeah. So, I mean, that's obviously not true. So in a way I feel like, oh, you know, I'm not even going to get upset about this. I mean, I'm not going to get upset. There was one, there was one interesting part in here where he was saying, cause it kind of reminded me of our conversation with Jonathan Stark Right. Remember that conversation where he said you figure out how much this thing is worth to the person and then charge 10 percent of that, which. OK, but he says, uh, OK, this is a five million pound property after all. And architects have a special slide rule for these situations. If you can afford a five mil home, they calculate you can afford at least three mil for the work. So that's what they charge you at the end, regardless of what it actually costs. Everybody, everyone knows that. I mean, obviously, we don't charge that much, but um Anyway, I just thought that was interesting because it kind of is almost what Jonathan Stark was talking about. No matter how much it actually costs, there's a value to it. I mean, a lot of that just kind of goes more to the value. Yeah, I, I I think that's true. And I think, you know, maybe my departure on that is he's he's saying that, uh, well, and I'm also looking at the article and there's a, there's a photograph uh, of, you know, some middle-aged white guy with, with architect-y glasses. Maybe this is the specky design wonk that's holding... You know, a physical model of, looks like a framing model of uh, of a house or a church or whatever it is. And uh, the caption under the photograph says, "Architects don't actually do anything except separate fools from their money." Right. That's how we're so rich, you know, Jeff. That's how we all always talk about how we don't know what to do with all our money that we make in this profession. I don't know. You know, he he. I did a little research on this writer, Giles Corin. Yeah, he's a little bit of a he's a little bit of a rabble rousing sort of controversial guy who had a radio show, I guess. Whatever. He's just likes to get people upset. You know, again, I think it's I think the whole thing is clickbait. But, you know, back to the the 50 was it 50 million pound and the architect says that you can uh you can afford to pay them 3 million pounds or however the however that calculation went and it's number one that's a fundamental misunderstanding of of you know how that discussion goes i don't think he cares about that um back to your point about jonathan stark and the value and you know tying it to what melissa wackerly said last week and we'll jump into that here in just a minute but but what is i mean i mean this whole thing is a to me is is a um it's a call to action for architects right it's I, to me, I think the worst thing that can happen and maybe has already happened is a whole bunch of architects um, writing letters to the editor or whatever, responding to this, this article, because there, you know, there are a whole lot of people that are going to, going to miss the point of this. Um, the point is definitely what is the value of an architect. But I would also say, you know, from the point of view that this is written, the whole 50 million versus or 500 million versus 50 million that to me that that reads as okay i'm going to spend 500 million on this home and who is this person to tell me that i should have 30 uh 30 million left over to pay them that that mentality to me is someone saying hey i am the only one that has any value i the person with the 500 million am the only person that has any value and how dare you say that you should be paid fairly to your services. I mean, for your services. I mean, we see this all the time at all different scales. Well, I didn't think of it that way. That's true. That is that is basically saying that that guy's saying. It is. And, and I think back to the caption, right? Architects don't do, don't actually do anything 
accept separate fools from their money. Okay, well, how are we going to disprove that? Right. That's to me, that's the call to action. I mean, I'd, I'd even put this on my website, this article on my website as a talking point for people who may, who knows, maybe my clients are thinking, why? Maybe I am just being a fool hiring someone to help me with this. And why would I do that? So, I mean, we could have a discussion. It's so um, outlandish, though, this whole article that it's not even a good, it's not even worth really talking about or or posting. But yeah, I mean, they're like backstreet abortionists and illegal plastic surgeons in that regard. You never hear anyone say it actually turned out rather well. It's always about how, quote, the architect told us it fell within permitted development or the architect persuaded us to do such and such, but didn't tell us that it would fall down in heavy rain. I mean, the guy's like, the entire thing is like that. So this was published in the UK, in the Times, in the RIBA, Royal Institute of British Architects. Um, they responded. And uh, so here, here's a, um, a tweet from the RIBA. It says, over the weekend, the Times published a satirical column referencing architects and home renovation projects. You know, we we don't know Giles... Uh, Corin at all, or I don't at least. I don't know how familiar you are with him, but um, so maybe maybe he is a satirist. I don't know, but it says RIBA President Simon Alford sent the following response for publication: Another witty es- essay by Giles Corin hilariously sets out his theory that all architects are rogues stealing a living from the hardworking columnist, his wife, and their friends. Who would not be flattered to be lampooned by such a literary luminary? The comments generated by this clickbait criticism include a vast range of very different takes on the vital role of architecture in solving some of the many problems we all face. And speak for themselves, I am an architect, so of course I would argue that architecture is actually about designing solutions for everything from house extensions to hospitals. That is about problem solving and creating opportunities to improve the theater of everyday life. That is a useful art and brings some joy to a sometimes gray world. Corin outrageously compares architects, a highly regulated profession, to backstreet abortionists. Architects have the sense and humor to rise above this sad attempt at satire, but racial stereotypes in anyone's books are no joke. So that's from Simon Alford, the uh, current RIBA president. So that was an interesting response there. But but again, I, I think it's I think it's a call to arms. Right? We talk about this all the time on different levels, not usually having someone uh, use these words and call it out in that way. But people don't understand the value of an architect. So okay, what are we going to do about that? You know, how are we going? How are we going to change that? And I I think there are a lot of people right. We're back where you and I are here in the States, there are a lot of people that say, hey, AIA doesn't do enough. Uh, my argument would be, hey, do you know what AIA does, both at the national and at the local level? Do you know what resources they have? And also, what responsibility does the individual architect bear? Because I, to me, a lot of those people that are saying that are saying, oh, they they should be doing this for me, right? They should be doing that for us, and they're not. Um which maybe is a decent segue to going back to um, Context of Clarity Live last week. We talked with Melissa Wackerly. She is she heads up resilience and sustainability strategy at AIA National. So uh, we talked with Melissa, and she had some great tips on the value of an or, or great outlook 
on the value of an architect as well as the resources and, and that AI has and, and what AI does. So um, good conversation, I thought. Yeah. And I think a common comment that I hear a lot about AIA, I'm not personally an AIA member. I was, I'm not right now. And so just weighing a lot of what is the value of that for me. And I was surprised. I mean, you know, pretty typically complaining about things or just assuming things that aren't true, realizing that there are a lot of resources that AIA has out there on things that I'm interested in. I was surprised and pleased to see all of all of the resources that she had. And she was very approachable and somebody who I could see calling up and talking to about um, about issues. Now, sometimes it seems like AIA has this air about it that it's not going to be, um, I don't know, that I'm not important enough to talk to them at all because I'm very small. Uh, well, sustainability is something that a lot of us talk about a lot, right? I mean, some people like um, Alan Benoit, his whole his whole name of his firm is Sustainable Design, and he's very, very takes a very firm stance that this is what I do and I'm not doing anything else, which I really admire. And, um, you know, I wish I could do myself, but I guess I'm afraid they won't come along, but, um, but that's what he does. So he's all about sustainability. A lot of us, I wrote a little sustainability guide type thing for people who didn't have any idea where to start, you know, so a lot of us have been trying to work on this. Um, there are hundreds of us, obviously, probably just even in, in context and clarity. I mean, probably in, Entree architect who who've been working hard on this, and yet we don't talk about it that often at context and clarity. Yeah, well, that that's a good point, and you know, like I said, actually today I, I looked it up as we were talking. Today will be our six hundred and fiftieth context and clarity conversation. So how about that? That's a, an accomplishment. That's a lot of it's uh, a lot of talking for you, a lot of reading comments. It's a lot of conversations, um, and, and it is it is surprising that this is the first time that we have devoted an entire week to talking about sustainability. You know, I, I think in this sort of straightforward, what is sustainability? How do we, how do we promote sustainability, et cetera, kind of way? Obviously that's because it's the first time that we've really had a, a guest that is a resiliency and sustainability strategist. So, you know, thinking about it in those terms. Um, and one of, one of my big takeaways from the week of, of conversations. And I guess, let me, I'll just give a quick rundown of, of our topics for each day. We started out the week asking what should the profession do to push sustainability forward? And Michelle Hodel pointed out, maybe push isn't the right word and maybe it's not, but we talked about that a little bit. Tuesday, our question was, how do you focus on, how do you focus on sustainability? So taking it from the sort of the profession level down to the practice level or even the purpose or person level. Then Wednesday, we asked the question, how do you sell sustainability? Thursday, we talked with Melissa Wackerly about a more resilient and sustainable future for the built environment. And then Friday, maybe we'll, maybe we'll touch on this before we wrap up our conversation here. It was our Context and Clarity Book Club discussion of The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, which when I first mapped out the week, I thought, okay, well, we we do the book club on the Friday because, you know, that, that's when we block out for the book club. And maybe it becomes a little bit disjointed from the rest of the week. But Melissa actually tied part of what she does and what she was talking about directly to that book. So that was a nice serendipitous little uh, connection there. Um, I I have been 
an associate member of of AIA since the 90s, I think, something like that. And I have done work with AIA. Um, I want to make sure that this is clear. This is not, uh, not an AIA commercial. That's not exactly why, or, or that's not why I bring this up. But I think one of the things, you, you know, you say, you said that, um, you know, you didn't feel like maybe, you know, maybe, maybe AIA was this, this big entity out there that didn't care about your little entity, your, your firm and things like that. And and I, I totally get that. I think it's easy to look at this organization of, I think they claim something like 90,000 members right now as this big monolith, especially at the national level, but even at the local level, you know, you're out in Boston, it's got a, a bit or in Massachusetts and Boston has a, a large AIA chapter out there. I think it's really easy to look at that and go, oh my gosh, you know, it's, it's this big entity that's, that is, um, uh, focused on on big firms, and to be fair, there is a lot of focus on big firms. So let's you know, let's not kid each other. The big firms pay the bills for organizations like that. But I think part of that too is, uh, you know, back to what you said about Melissa. Once we know a person, you know, inside that monolith of a of an organization, maybe it does become easier and maybe we can make that connection. Maybe you can call or email Melissa and say, Hey, what about this? Yeah, that's probably true. But I, I, it's like $900 or something like that to join AIA. And from what I've heard that I get, I would get the most out of it if I participated, which makes sense, but I don't have the time to, I don't know what I would give up if I ended up serving on committees and things like that. Cause I just don't have, um, and I don't mean to say like, oh, I'm too busy. I don't have the time, but I already participate a lot in EA, for example, Entree Architect. And maybe I'm, I'm maybe that's enough for me that I'm already satisfied with my connection to other architects through that. I mean, I think that's I think that's a fair point, right? And when people say that, I think I think they're right. If you want to get the most out of it, you you have to get involved. But that that can be very very difficult when you're trying to make value judgments and and um, uh, balance things and juggle things. Etc. So at least we know, you know, from what Melissa told us, there's this tab on the AIA website, which is uh, AIA.org, the resources tab. When Melissa was rattling off this resource and that resource for, you know, a, a sustainability get started guide, that's not what it's actually called, but that's how I'm remembering it. But, but different sustainability resources, they're all there under the resource tab, uh, as well as as resources for other types of topics. And there's a lot there. I think it was after we were live and, and we were sort of backstage talking with Melissa, talking about the fact that probably most people and uh, even members don't know about the resources that are available. Yeah. And, yeah, and I've been I've been involved with organizations that we try to educate the public. We have so much information out there and then people still complain about not having information, but it's right there. You, all you have to do is go and look and it, we have put out so much and spent so much time. And I think it's a pretty common thing that people don't really dig as deep as they could. Yeah, I think it is. Well, it's the same. <laughs> it's the same thing. Someone asks you a question, you go, well, what about this? And, you know, how do you know this? It's like, hey, the magic Google box knows all, right? It's You, you didn't even take time to, to Google that. Well, it's easier to complain about things not being the way you want them than to figure out sure, that they are. It is. Yeah. One of my big takeaways in talking with Melissa was, or well, maybe more than one, a couple of takeaways. One, we've got to do something about the climate crisis. Two, there are people 
that are inordinately affected by the climate crisis. And it's the people who are, it's almost all, almost always the people who are at most risk anyway, that are inordinately affected. Right. I mean, there are a lot of cities, obviously, that are going to have to, a lot of the coastal cities really have a lot of work to do. And there's a lot of property value there. But there are, uh, I was talking to someone about moving a house in Charleston, lifting a house, um, a mansion. It was like, took all year. It was a lot of money to to raise the house. And then at the time I was asking him, well, what about the people who can't afford to have their houses lifted? The people who live in the lowlands of, of you know, down along the Atlantic coast, for example. And yeah, they're just out of luck. And those are the, some of those are the not very valuable um, properties to anybody else except for them. It's valuable to them because they can live there. And that was in the book as well. Just said, it's like this whole system that has disadvantaged um, minorities who then are the ones who are going to be more affected by this because they don't, in these in these less wealthy communities, they don't have the money to put into the infrastructure to save the community, you know. So it's all like just a problem. It's a big mess. Yeah. It, so when we're talking about climate crisis issues, and somebody could look at, uh, you know, we've talked about this a bit this year because Hurricane Ian ravaged the west coast of Florida, and the eye of the of the hurricane hit. Captiva Island first, and then um, and then came ashore from there, hit Sanibel, and then Fort Myers, and that that felt a little bit personal to me because we don't own any property down there, but that's where we have vacationed for over a decade uh, on Captiva, and you know my my point of view, my perspective of that is just kind of looking at that and, and feeling feeling a loss because of the destruction of of nature and of course properties and things things like that down there but let's be really clear right if you lost a place on captiva that's terrible but the least expensive property on that island is you know like a million plus up into the tens of millions of dollars and and I'm not trying to discount anybody in any way but there are also very few actual full-time residents on Captiva. You move in inland uh, and you get to Sanibel and you have more residents there because you have a lot of people that live there on Sanibel that work, right? It's the people that can't afford to live in certain places, but they want to be as close as they can because they work in a restaurant or you know some other place on, on one of these islands. There's a much bigger impact on their losses. Right. And they may be there, may not leave there. Oh, why don't they leave there? You know, yeah, just leave, go live somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, go live like somewhere that. else. And and their entire generational wealth per, perhaps is wrapped up in that one place that it turns out it's not a real safe place to be, right? When a hurricane comes ripping through the Gulf of Mexico and and onto land right there. Uh and and then then you move into Fort Myer and just the incredible devastation in Fort Myer, and you've got you've got some very wealthy people and you've got some homeless people and you've got all, you know, a whole spectrum, but it's the, it's the people that didn't have, you know, by, by standard scales or standard measurement that didn't have anything to begin with. Those are the ones that are going to be inordinately impacted. They're inordinately impacted because they don't, maybe they're homeless. They're inordinately impacted on any day. It's, super hot out, it's super cold out, whatever it is. 
and now a hurricane comes through and does that and you have you have examples of that all over the place you know is it a shame that someone lost their vacation property or their uh, maybe it's even even their primary property but it's you know it's in the 1% of course it's a shame it's the same way I feel about Nantucket, which is an island off the coast of Massachusetts, which is um, very expensive now. It's a very expensive island. And there are people on that island who, um, because of not being able to buy properties and all the rest of that stuff, they have property there that they aren't going to be able to afford to raise up. And now there's all this talk about raising these huge houses up. And it changes the whole island and low woe is me. It changes the island. But who cares? You can afford to raise your whole house up. So you're not going to really lose your house. It's all just a weird it's just a weird, uh, you think about what it, the landscape is all going to look like. To me, it'll be so different in these cities and places where I live, because I live on the coast or I live, well, now I live on the coast, but my life has been spent around the water and that's all going to be different. It's all going to be different. What can architects do to help people who, or to come up with systems that people could more easily uh, protect their homes from occasional water? Because the water could come in three feet. And then leave again. So then really that affects the materials and the electricity. So is there any way we can we can develop some way to to help them in a in an inexpensive way? So that because once once the water has risen so that it's it's permanently higher, that's a different story. But it really is from the storms that'll come in and out and it won't be an everyday thing. Yeah. Anyway, just just the idea behind our book was shocking. The book was shocking to me in that I am embarrassed. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to be this white lady who um never really learned about all this inequity and the systemic racism of the um zoning laws and i mean i have been learning recently in recent years more about all these things but growing up no idea also growing up in the north there was this kind of smugness about not being the south where it turns out we're just as um more racist up here than the south probably you know it's it's, um it's good to learn these things it's good to learn these things but the book was um infuriating really i i just wish there was some way that we as architects could help with that situation i don't know what that would be so one point we need to make is number one that was part of the conversation with with melissa wackerly was that you know and tying that back to the article we were talking about she's you know the value of an architect part of the value of an architect has to be that architects are the ones that are that are poised to solve the climate crisis or respond is probably a better way to say that respond to the climate crisis. And they have the bill, the ability to do that for, for all people. So what we find with climate change and the impacts that the the deleterious impacts of climate change is that they affect those folks who are most underinvested oftentimes. And so there is a huge climate justice issue when it comes to um, communities that are located in floodplains because that's the only land that they can afford. There's intergenerational wealth that's tied to home ownership. And so when they lose those homes, they not only lose um, their place of to live, their domicile, but they also lose the value that comes with that. When people are displaced from their homes, the longer the, the the lower income they are, the longer they're displaced, and the more impact that that has on their lives. So that equates to um, lower income levels because lack of job advancement or lack of opportunity to access education. So you know, if you are someone who who was impacted by Katrina 
you know, many of those people have are still displaced. Many of them moved permanently to places like Houston and Dallas and, you know, all over the, the South. And so it takes a long time to recover from that kind of disruption to your life. And if you don't have the financial resources in place to absorb that, you know, it can be devastating. As builders of the or designers of the built environment, we can always advise our clients not to build in certain places or, you know, we can run a vulnerability assessment and look at a site and say, here's how your site is vulnerable. And we can either adapt to those vulnerabilities or there may be times where we just need to say, that's not a good place to build. And I think that's that's a really important segue to this book that we're talking about. And we discussed it in our, our book club. It's The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. And um, and I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, it it's it is embarrassing to read the book or listen to the book. That's how I I consume it. To listen to the book and hear story after story after story. Basically, a uh, there there's actually a, a subtitle. It's the the color of law, forgotten history of how our government segregated America. And at one point, I thought, you know, this is this is a history of how we mistreated black people for hundreds of years. I mean, that that's, that's really what this is about. And some of, some of the things I knew and some of the things I didn't, and I said this during our discussion, you know, I'm originally from Atlanta and uh, moved, moved to Chicago when I was a kid. It, and I had this perception that I would probably start listening to this book and just hear story after story after story of the deep South. That's where I'm from. I've seen it. I get it. You know, I know, it turns out I know some of those stories, but not a lot of those stories. But it wasn't like that, right? There were certainly stories from Atlanta and other southern southern cities, uh, but it wasn't just that. It, it's he actually started out in San Francisco. If it can happen in San Francisco, it can happen anywhere. It was was the quote that just stands out to me all the time. It, you know, and you just mentioned that that the smugness of the North. I mean that that was that was my experience, and and I am in no way. This is not Jeff the victim at all, especially not in this context, but not at all. But moving from Atlanta to Chicago is like, yeah, that's real, right? Oh, you're from the South. The The number of, of comments I got and still actually to this day, someone will find out where I'm, I'm, I'm from the South and, you know, it's, it's evolved a little bit over the past handful of years with all the craziness that's going on in our society. But, but I had a teacher and you know this story, but I had a teacher that was determined to remove the Southern accent from me. You know, that's such a sad story. Think of little Jeff humiliated in class and made to speak like a, someone from Chicago. It's a sad and it's an abusive story. And, and I, again, in the context of what we're talking about, I am not, yes, I was a victim in that context, definitely, but not in the context that we're talking about. But I think it's an, a decent illustration, right? Here's someone that's different than us. We're either going to, make him like us, you know, I had the benefit of of looking like a lot of the people, right? So I had that benefit. Uh, we're going to change him or we're going to get rid of him. And, you know, this, go back to this, the color of law book, which again is the context of that is much, much worse. The zoning laws, the way that housing was marketed, was developed. Mortgage lenders. Restrictive covenants. Mortgage lenders, yeah. A Supreme Court decision that was written by Justice John Roberts that Richard Rothstein, the author of this, argues 
that the decision was not actually based on fact, right? It was based on this idea that people segregate themselves based on choice rather than by jurisdiction or, or by law, which, I mean, that's really what this book is about. It's, it's example after example of example of how the government, of how law, legislation, et cetera, all these things that we just named off were actually systematically segregating people and putting people at dis- specifically in the case of this book, putting black people at a disadvantage to others. Uh, and it's just, it's an amazing read that I think everybody needs to read this. I really think you need to read this. You're not going to like it, the whole, but you do need to read it. The, um, the whole question of one of the community questions for the week was about climate change and the migrating to other areas of the country. And that kind of ties into the book about people who don't have any choice. Like I might have a choice to sell my house and move to a different area, but not everybody does. So just assuming that, oh, well, we can just move to somewhere that is not too hot or move somewhere else, you know, but you're like you were saying earlier, you just can't, you just can't do that. But yeah, what can we do? And is it too late? was one of the big questions from the community. And um, I don't know, is it too late? What can we do? I guess another takeaway from the week, not only with Melissa, but also in discussing this book is that there may be some answers, there are no easy answers. And then the way to accomplish you know, for instance, that that's a great point. What do you do for somebody in the in the lower eighth in New Orleans, right? There are my my mom used to live in New Orleans, and when Katrina came through and just you know everything that happened just devastated that city. You know, she she talked about the fact she said there are there are parts of that city that are habit that are inhabited that just should not be, right? And and you know that's what we're talking about, right? But you have people that live in those areas that one of the things that came up was the idea of reparations that came up in our discussion of the of the book. What about reparations? Well, what does that look like? You know, if you are there, there are all kinds of different formulas that, that we can imagine for that. And one of the fundamental problems is if you live somewhere like that, right? And you live there because your parents lived there and your grandparents lived there. And maybe maybe you're in, in the same house that two or three generations of your family have owned. That's all you've got, right? And the problem is the value of that is, well, the value of that is next to nothing. But especially in light of, of the climate crisis, it's probably less than nothing. Yeah, it's not safe. Right. You can't sell it to somebody else. So then how do you... You know, even if you were to say, hey, we're going to pay you for your property so that you can move somewhere else, you can't move somewhere else, right? You can't find a similar property somewhere else for what we just paid you, you know, based on what we have uh, estimated that your property is worth. And so then you can get into all sorts of calculations and things like that. There's, uh, there's no easy answers, but it's something that we're going to have to grapple with. You know, I, I think I mentioned this, and I think you mentioned this as well when we were talking about the color of law, there's a there's a postscript that's frequently asked questions. It's questions that people have asked Richard Rothstein since he since the book was published. And and I think if you first of all read the whole book, don't skip the postscript because I think you can really get a sense for how difficult these questions are to actually answer when you get into the questions that people have asked. And sometimes they're they're questions, sometimes they're pushbacks, but I think you get a sense or even from him, who's done all of this research and all of this writing and everything else, there's no easy answers to these things. But somebody needs to be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the main thing 
main takeaway from the book for me was that if you read the book, I think that after you read the book, there you want to help, you want to find a solution. Whereas maybe before, you know, it's kind of a problem and you're not as, but then reading the book, like, oh yeah, this definitely needs to be addressed and how can I help? I mean, it just kind of, it's a kind of a white privilege thing where I get to not pay that much attention to it. I can hear little stories and not pay. So this just really hit me over the head about, you know, use, use your skills for something to help somebody in a situation. I don't know what that is though. Maybe a way to wrap this up is we were, we were talking earlier before we hit record about the, you know, this new format and part of it, part of this new format is going to be current events. We talked about the article in, in the times, Maybe our current event for next week is a, a firm that decided that they were going to be very transparent and publish financial information and, and how things really sort of hit the fan once they did that. And uh, just a, a a preview of my takeaway on that as it relates probably to, to, to today's discussion. I think that part of the problem is that there are a lot of architects that will look at this problem. You look at the the Captiva Sanibel Fort Myers problem go, well, architects are only going to play this tiny, tiny role in whatever the solutions are down there, whether it's rebuilding or preventing future destruction or whatever it is, we're going to play this little tiny role because not everybody in that equation, not everybody in that area down there can afford architects. Absolutely true. Right. The, the, um, uh, you know, one thing I say over and over, and I actually say this to my students as well, is that we talk a lot about the fact that the vast majority of the built environment is not designed by architects. You know, something like 90% is not touched by architects. Some people say, well, architecture, you know, the, the profession, the practice of architecture is has has evolved into the service for the 1%. What we're talking about is going to take service of more than the 1%. But if you don't like the fact that architecture is for the 1%, architects and services from architects are for the 1%, then you're going to have to reimagine the practice. You're going to have to reimagine the services because you can't, the business, the traditional traditional business model, architecture firm business model is designed to serve the 1%. You know, throw your colleges and universities, throw your hospitals, throw your very wealthy residential clients in there. That's the 1%, right? Or the 10% or whatever the number is, whatever the actual number is. If you're going to serve someone that's not the one or 10 or whatever percent, there's going to have to be a different approach. There's going to have to be a different business model. We're going to have to think differently about that. And I think that's the real challenge, whether it's sustainability or it's the adjudicated segregation or whatever it is, we're going to have to think differently about the role of an architect, the responsibility of an architect, the business model of an architect, how an architect gets paid and what they get paid for, I think. Yeah, I just had an idea, Jeff. All right. Well, I think a lot of architects are kind of problem-solving type people. Yes. What if these organizations who are already trying to work on these issues had architects on staff to help with that could be some positions in a way architects could help as if we got the organizations to hire us. So that's where we get paid, right. To help all these other people who wouldn't be able to afford to hire somebody to, or even do the work. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm just looking at how to be how, just because we can, we can come up with some solutions, whether or not they're, especially with a physical environment, 
things that would make sense. But one thing I'm really concerned about, and this probably, one thing I'm really concerned about is what is the underneath all these buildings, if they get raised up, what's that going to be like? Is it going to be like this mean, cold space underneath all of these? Is it going to be a place where all this crime takes place? Is it going to be a place where like mold just grows? Is it, it just doesn't seem like a very uh, inviting space. So how can we make those useful and not like the worst thing that's ever happened to a community to disjoint? Okay, like just separating people from the earth is is disturbing. So how's that going to work anyway? I think that's a good point. I mean, who who better? I mean, I'm not trying to take anything away from a builder or an engineer or anybody else that is part of the process, but there are many, many, many specialists and many architects have, and some people are going to hear me say this and go, oh, that, that's ironic to hear you say this. Many architects have framed themselves as specialists. And a lot of what we're talking about is going to require a broader view, a broader vision, right? So specialists will always have their roles in these different areas. How do you do this? How do you do that specifically, et cetera? But what, what's the big picture? Um, what happens when you raise all of these buildings, all of these houses? And, you know, raise as in lift, not raise as in R-A-I-S-E instead of R-A-Z-E. Is that right? Did I get that right? What happens, just like you said, what happens? Do you, uh, you've created different, potentially you've created different space now, additional space. What happens there? You know, how do you protect that? All, all the different things. And I, I think it's a couple of things come, came to my mind as, as you were saying that is probably several months ago, we talked with Aaron Pellegrino and Jake Rudin about of architecture. They actually just talked in my undergrad class last week. One of the things I really appreciate about Jake and Aaron is this focus on the actual value of your education, of your experience, of of everything that you've learned in the practice and in school and all that. And where can that be applied? Where are the near adjacent roles to the traditional architecture role? Because there's lots of ways, lots of places. And and then I, I remember when we were preparing to talk with Clifton Harness a co-founder of TestFit, again, a couple of months ago at least. And I was listening to a podcast, I don't remember which one, apologies to whoever it was, but Clifton was, Clifton said, architects, so, someone asked him, you know, TestFit is a generative design tool. Um, someone asked him about generative design tools and AI and things like that, if that was going to hurt the profession of architecture. And he says, no, it's not because they're they're just tools. And by the way, architects need to reimagine their role at a higher level, at a more a more valuable level, a more impactful level. And that that has stuck with me because I think that's exactly what we're talking about now. Is you know, do we need more people drafting? No, we don't need more people drafting. Uh, do we need more people solving bigger, more complex problems? Yes, I think we do. And I think we need to, you know, especially in light of these conversations that we're having today about resiliency and sustainability and and racism and segregation and all of those things, reparations, we we need the best problem solvers in the world to be focused on these. And I would dare say that many of the best problem solvers in the world are in this profession, especially when it comes to systems and the built environment. Yeah. Well, that's a way more eloquent way of saying what I was just saying, that we could be helpful in this um, figuring out solutions, I feel like. 
if we knew where to go. I, I, I feel a little helpless. Like, I don't know. I guess I can go to my town's sustainability um, committee and see what I can do there. I think starting small, you know, it would be great to be Melissa Wackerly, who's the the uh, resiliency and sustainability strategist at AIA. There you're plugged in at an international level and you're creating resources that can be used at least at a national level, if not an international level. So it'd be great to be her, but she didn't start there. You know, you can go, go to her LinkedIn and, you know, she worked uh, in construction firms and, and design firms and product manufacturing and USB, G, USGBC. And, you know, she made her way to that point. And it's not that a lot of us that are of a certain point at a certain point in our career want to start our careers over, but, you know, we can look at, okay, where can I make an impact? And and maybe it does need to start small, or maybe it needs to be like Alan Benoit that you mentioned earlier and taking a stronger stand with our clients and having having the courage, which is not easy either. I totally wish I had the courage just to do that. Or Andy Roll in uh, in Cincinnati. You know, he's, he takes a firm stand that every project that we work on is this, right? It has these sustainability goals. And if a client, potential client comes and they're interested in that, they want that, fantastic. If they're against that, they're not our client. Do they have to be granola crunching tree huggers? No, there are different ways to talk about it. You know, if they value a low operating cost and, you know, a, uh, a lower life cycle cost and, and a resiliency that's, that's going to be a, res- a, uh, a generational home or building or whatever, then, you know, those are people that we can have conversations with, but it, you know, it takes some courage to, uh, as, as you know, to, uh, to take that kind of stand. I think everybody should be tree huggers though. I mean, I know that's a term people use, but the trees, the trees we're going to find out someday, probably in 200 years, that they're the ones who are in charge of all this all the whole time. And we make furniture and buildings out of them. That's my prophecy. All you got to do is watch one of the uh, the movies based on the Tolkien books. Yeah, that's right. Well, this is this has been, you know, basically around the uh, context and clarity world. And this is a new format that we're trying out. If you're new to the context and clarity podcast, welcome. Context and clarity starts every weekday, Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern on Clubhouse. And then at 4 p.m. Eastern in the Entree Architect Community Facebook group, we have what we call the Context and Clarity Conversations. And then on Thursday afternoons at 4 p.m. on Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and Twitch and YouTube, uh, Catherine and I interview a guest. We have a conversation. This guest that we've been talking about in this episode has been Melissa Wackerly, resiliency and sustainability strategist at AIA National. We do that every week, every Thursday afternoon. And then once a month, we have our Context and Clarity Book Club. Uh, There's a lot, you know, that's a lot of things to remember there. There's a lot going on in Context and Clarity. So I guess the, the thing to do is to encourage you, number one, if you're an architect, go over to the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. It's a lively group. Like we said, 7,800 or so members in that group, lots of things going on there, lots of conversations going on, great place to get answers, to share your wisdom, your experience, et cetera. If you want to, if you want the full depth and breadth of our context and clarity conversations, probably the 
easiest or the live conversations, probably the easiest thing to do is to go over to the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there for all of the Context and Clarity live conversations, including the one with Melissa, including conversations with people like Jonathan Siegel, if you're into Arctic uh, as developer, Michael Gerber, author of E-Myth, E-Myth Revisited, Seth Godin, Marketing Luminary. There's there's lots and lots of great conversations there. And we're, we're just searching for lessons that can be applied in the practice of architecture. Uh, that's what all of these conversations are about. So thanks for listening. Come back again next week. Give us a rating, a review, wherever you're listening now. Give us suggestions, recommendations on who you'd like us to talk to, what topics you'd like us to cover. Hope you come back next week. Join Catherine and I again. We'll give you a recap again of the week. We'll give you a recap of our conversations and you're going to get some unabridged conversation about what we think about what's going on. So Catherine, again, thanks for co-hosting this with me. My pleasure. Great to have you here. The guest for Context and Clarity Live that's coming up is Jamie Claire Kaiser. She is the head of mergers and acquisitions at Zweig Group. So I think that's going to be an interesting conversation as we come back next week and talk about yeah, the, the mergers and acquisitions, does that conversation have a place in small firms? I think it does. We'll find out. Thanks for listening. Look forward to seeing you again next week. Until then, please be well, stay safe, keep those around you safe and well. Take a little bit of time to breathe, relax, find some way to get rejuvenated because we do this every single day. This podcast comes out once a week, but we have these context and clarity conversations actually twice a day every weekday. So you got to pace yourself. Thanks for going along this journey with us and we'll see you next week. Thanks everybody. All right. Well, now you know what we thought and what we're going to do with what we learned, but what did you think? What did we miss? I really hope that there was some big takeaway from either the context and clarity live conversation or our breakdown here that will help you with your business. DM me on Instagram or Twitter and let me know what your takeaways are. You can find me on all the socials at at Jeff underscore Eccles. That's at J-E-F-F underscore E-C-H-O-L-S. So send me a message and let me know what your takeaway was. And if you want more conversations like this, subscribe to the Context and Clarity podcast where you're listening right now and leave us an honest review and a rating. Those things really do help us to get the message out and help more architects just like you. Oh, and also, now you can follow us on Instagram, as well as get a heads up on everything that's coming up. There, we're at context underscore clarity. In our next episode, Catherine and I will host Context and Clarity Live again with a new special guest and a new theme for the week. And we'll come right back here, backstage again, to break it all down for you again. There's always something new to look forward to. And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people like you that care about the built environment. And it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know that you're going to find something there that interests you. You can learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. 
And finally, if the topic of today's episode is of particular interest to you and you'd like to dig deeper into it, then join me over in the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. That's where every weekday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern, I host Context and Clarity Conversations. And we take these topics, topics like this, and we dig deeper. We have a conversation in real time to try to find more clarity around the things that matter most to you. So thanks for listening. I hope our time together has inspired you to think about your community, your practice, and how you can support those around you. Catherine and I will be back for our next episode. And in the meantime, I hope you'll join me and the Entree Architect community on Facebook today at 4 p.m. Eastern so that we can help each other find more clarity around the topics that matter most, no matter what your context may be. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.